are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. I'm David Guzik and very glad that you could join me for this week's question and answer time. The question we're going to begin with on this particular week is from Rex. And Rex asked the question, basically, if I could paraphrase it, what was the mark of Cain in Genesis chapter 4? So let me read to you Rex's question. He asked this. David, I think I have another interesting question. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, we read about the mark placed on Cain so that all who saw it would know that they were not to kill him. How did they know what the mark meant? What do you suppose the mark was? Thank you again so much for your years of service and genuine love for the world. Well, you're very welcome, Rex, and I'm glad to do what I'm able to do. And I'm glad to answer this question. Really, what Rex's question deals with goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 10 to talk about God's curse upon Cain. Now, we remember the story of Genesis back in the Garden of Eden. God created Adam. Then from Adam, he created Eve. Then they disobeyed God. They fell in the garden. And the responsibility for the fall was placed upon Adam directly, not Eve. Not not that she had no guilt, but the real responsibility was placed on Adam and not Eve. Uh, They were driven out of the Garden of Eden. They had normal marital relations, if we want to say that. And Eve gave birth to a boy, and his name was Cain. And then she gave birth to another boy, and his name was Abel. And when they were old enough, we don't know exactly what age, Cain and Abel had a dispute and Cain became jealous of his brother Abel and Cain murdered his brother Abel, which you just have to admit was a shocking thing. I mean, I always think about how in the Bible what we see is this story where the first sin is the sin of eating something that God commands you not to eat, which was a definite sin. I mean, we're not trying to say that it wasn't, but on the scale of how serious sins are, it it doesn't seem as bad as many other sins. The second sin that we have recorded in the scriptures, and I'm not saying that you couldn't find anything, you know, uh, you could say that Adam and Eve trying to hide themselves from God, that was sin. But the second significant sin that we see stated in the scriptures was a man murdered his own brother. And to go from uh, the place of eating something God told you not to eat to murdering your own brother, that that's falling down pretty fast. So Cain murdered Abel, and God called Cain to account for that murder. And this is kind of what we pick it up with in Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 10. And he said, what have you done? The he there is God. And what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. So Cain was guilty of murder. And for whatever specific reason, we could suggest some reasons, but for whatever specific reasons, God did not command or carry out the death penalty in Cain's case. But he did declare him to be, as it says there in verse 10, cursed from the earth. And the curse upon Cain was that Adam's curse would be sort of amplified in regard to him. In other words, 
if it was going to be difficult for Adam to bring forth food from the earth, God made that part of the curse in Genesis chapter 3, it was going to be impossible for Cain. Remember, Cain was a farmer. He brought the produce of his field and sacrificed to God. Abel's sacrifice was better. That's why Cain was jealous of Abel. So as it says there in the verses I just read, verses 10, 11, and 12, it says, when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. And if Adam was to be driven from the Garden of Eden, we find that in Genesis chapter 3, Cain wasn't going to find any resting place on the earth. He would be, as it says in verse 12, a fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be in the earth. In whatever way Adam was cursed, Cain would be cursed exponentially in those areas. Now, when God pronounced this curse upon Cain, Cain complained. Now we get into verses 13, 14, and 15 of Genesis chapter 4. This is what it says. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I'll be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that if anyone finds me, he will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Okay, so here's the situation. First, when God puts this curse upon Cain, which, as I said before, was sort of an amplification of the curse that was put upon Adam. When God puts this curse upon Cain, Cain complained. By the way, I, I find it fascinating that Cain didn't seem to feel bad about his sin, but he felt bad about his punishment. And, and you got to say, that attitude did not stop with Cain. Many people since Cain, perhaps it's almost a universal thing in the human race that we tend to only feel bad about the consequences of our sin. We don't feel bad about the sin itself. But this is what God said. He said, Cain, no, I'll take care of that. God pronounced, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Now, as significant as God's judgment against Cain was, God did not want Cain to be killed by others. Who knows exactly why? Maybe God said the population of the earth is so low that, you know, we, we need to build it. Maybe God felt that Cain would be more instructive to the very young earth, that God would be more, uh, that Cain would be more instructive to the young earth as a living testimony of God's judgment than if God were to, you know, strike him down or have him execute in some kind of court of law, as much as that might have been in the very first generations of the earth. So what God do? It says there, the Lord set a mark on Cain. God set some kind of identifying and protective mark upon Cain. And some people like to speculate as to what that mark was, but nobody really knew what the mark upon Cain was. Now, the two questions that Resk asked, number one was, what was the mark of Cain? We got to say, we don't know. It, mark on his forehead. Mark upon his body. Who knows what the mark of Cain was? I'm going to share something. I almost hesitate to share it because it's so disgraceful. In justifying race slavery in the United States uh, for the many years in the early years of the United States when there was race slavery, when black people, African-Americans were enslaved and brought over as slaves from Africa, there were some Bible teachers in that day 
who tried to say that the mark of Cain was a black skin and therefore all Africans or all black people descended from Cain. That is a completely ignorant, offensive, wrong teaching. Nobody knows what the mark of Cain was. And it can be demonstrated both from the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10 and from anthropology and history that, that the, the, uh, the Negro race, if you want to call it that, the black people, Africans in that sense, black Africans did not descend from Cain. It's just a different genetic thing altogether. Okay, anyway. We don't know what the mark of Cain was, and we don't know exactly how it was known throughout all the earth at that time what the significance of the mark of Cain was, other than just to say people talk, people communicate. I think word would have gotten around very quickly, and if anybody was interested in spreading that word, it was Cain himself. Cain had a great motivation to make it known as widely as possible what the significance of the mark of Cain was. And it was basically, don't mess with me. Don't harm me. I am marked both by a curse, but by a protection. God wanted Cain to remain on the earth alive, cursed but alive, as to be just that, sort of a demonstration of a living curse. And what a strange and terrible thing that was. So Rex, I got to say, I'm afraid I don't have a satisfactory answer to your question for this simple reason. The Bible doesn't have a satisfactory answer for that question. Um, we don't know exactly what the mark of Cain was, and we don't know how the meaning of the mark was communicated throughout the earth, other than just to sort of speculate Cain, as much as anybody, would have had a great interest in this. So thank you for your question, Rex. And let me move on to the next question. This next question is one that comes up a lot. And uh, I'm going to deal with it in some depth, but I I'm happy to because this is a question that comes up a lot. Uh, JDSS asks this question. Do women have to wear a veil? In church only? Out of the church? Can they not wear a veil? Or if they don't wear the veil, is it because they're single or because of married? He's asking questions about women having to wear veils. Now, let, let me give a quick answer to... Uh, the question from JDSS. And then I'm going to go on and give a much longer explanation. So I don't mind giving a quick answer to begin with, but then I, I have to say, hold on and, and get the more reasoned uh, thing where we tease it out. Okay, here's the quick answer. Number one, if wearing a head covering, because maybe I need to pause right there. Uh, JDSS says veil because many Bible translations, including uh, the New King James, which I have in front of me now, uh, often say veil. But actually, the idea is of a head covering. Um, the, the idea is, is simply this, is that um, when we say veil, we often think of veil such as a Muslim woman might wear with a full-on, you know, the whole burqa and veil and head covering and face covering, you know, where maybe just a slit of the eyes is open. And, and to them, that's what says veil. That isn't the idea in ancient Hebraic or Roman culture. Really, what we're talking about is a head covering, some kind of scarf, some kind of thing that would definitely be used to cover the head. So I know that JDS has said veil, and we often say veil. Sometimes we'll say veil when we're referring to this. 
But really what we're talking about is a head covering. So here's the answer. If wearing a head covering communicates being under authority and submission to authority in your culture, then women should wear a head covering in the meetings of the church. Again, let me just repeat that. If in your culture, wearing a head covering communicates being under authority or submission to authority, then women should wear the head covering at meetings of the church. Now, this is why I believe that head coverings are not required for women today in Western cultures. I'm not talking about other cultures because I know there's cultural differences around the earth, but in Western culture, to wear a head covering in the church or otherwise does not communicate under authority. The two things are not associated. In biblical times and in those cultures, it was associated. Now, let me get back to kind of teasing this out in greater depth. I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm going to start reading at verse 2, where we read this. Paul says to the Corinthians, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, now check this out. This whole section on head coverings begins with Paul laying down a fundamental principle. And here's the fundamental principle. Number one, the head of every man is Christ. And then he goes on to say, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now with these words, here is the principle. Paul makes it clear that God has established principles of order, authority, and accountability. That's the whole context of headship here in biblical culture and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You see, the idea of head is an important word in this chapter. Now, it's true. There are some Bible teachers and interpreters who try to advance the idea that head means nothing more than source in the sense that we might say the head of a river is its source. Now, this word can mean this, but, but Paul isn't simply saying man came from Jesus, woman came from man, and Jesus came from God. Now, that simple understanding is true, but it goes much deeper because in biblical thinking, a source has inherent authority. Remember how very much honoring to ancestors these cultures were. Remember how often the Bible arguments go back to ancestry. This is because, again, a source has inherent authority. If something comes from me, there is some appropriate authority that I have over it. Now, in its full sense, head in 1 Corinthians 11 has the idea of headship and authority. It means to have the appropriate responsibility to lead and the matching accountability. By the way, let's remember those two things always. God always couples uh, responsibility with accountability, a responsibility with authority. If somebody is going to have authority, then they have responsibility. If somebody has responsibility, then they have some measure of authority. 
And it is right and appropriate to submit to someone whom God has declared to be our head. Now, in these verses that I just read to you, Paul describes three headship relationships. Number one, Jesus is the head of every man. Number two, man is the head of woman. And then number three, God the Father is the head of Jesus Messiah, the Christ. Because Paul connects these three relationships, you can say the principles of headship are the same among them. So where he says the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God, therefore, women in the church have two options in their attitude towards their head. They can imitate the kind of attitude that men have towards Christ. Now listen, do men recognize God as their authority? Well, largely no. That's a rebelliousness that God has to win over. But then look at the way that Jesus the Messiah, how Jesus Christ uh, submits and the attitude he has towards his father. That is loving submission as an equal. Because God the Father and God the Son are equal, yet the Son shows submission to the Father. So the ideas of headship and authority are very important to God. These are things that God looks for in his unfolding plan of the ages. And Jesus showed this again and again in his life. This is why Jesus came as a servant came uh, surrendered, came obedient to the Father's will, and, and came showing that kind of servant attitude in everything. This idea of voluntary submission may look slightly different in how it's expressed between men and women, but the principle is the same. And again, it's very important to understand that being under authority does not equal inferiority. Jesus was totally under the authority of God the Father, yet he is also equally God. When God calls women in the church to recognize the headship of men, it's not because women are unequal. It's not because women are inferior. It's because in that institution, God has an ordained order of authority to be respected. Okay, after laying that groundwork, now let's look at verses 4, 5, and 6 of 1 Corinthians 11. We read this. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Okay, let me stop right there at verse 4. You see, the idea is simply this, is that because of this order of authority, it's appropriate for men to pray. Uh, it's, excuse me, it's inappropriate for men to pray under a head covering. Because God has placed them in a place of responsibility and authority within the congregation. That's why he says, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, which in that culture was a demonstration of being under authority, dishonors his head. But now verse 5, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Okay, do you get the point here? It's inappropriate for men in the church to give up their authority and to act as if they are not in positions of leadership. And it's equally inappropriate for a woman to reject God's order of authority in the congregation and to say she has no place for that. Now, again, I want to get back to the idea. 
In the Corinthian culture, this was communicated by a head covering. In modern Western culture, the head covering doesn't communicate that. It just doesn't have that cultural meaning. So the principle lasts through the generations for the churches. The way that it is expressed by having a head covered or uncovered, it, it has no relevance in today's culture, but the principle is eternally relevant. I will uh, read to you a quote from uh, Adam Clark, as a matter of fact. He's one of the commentators that I like to read from time to time. He says, It was a custom both among the Greeks and Romans and among the Jews as an express law that no woman should be seen abroad without a veil or head covering. This was and is a common custom throughout all the East, and none but public prostitutes go without head coverings. Again, Adam Clark saying, this is how it was in those customs. So in some cultures today, wearing a hat or some kind of head covering is a picture of humility and modesty in a uh, analogous way. The head covering back then had an important cultural meaning among the ancient Corinthians. So again, just get this idea that the principle remains the same, how it is outwardly expressed with symbols or, or with, you know, accessories, if you want to use that word, that may differ from culture to culture. So th this is my simple response to you, JDSS. If in your culture, a woman wearing a head covering communicates, I'm under authority, then it's appropriate for her to wear it in the congregation. In the Western culture in which I live in, it doesn't, also, well, look at the scarf on the lady's head. That's all anybody would say. But the principle, the principle isn't determined by culture. How it is outwardly expressed may differ from culture to culture, especially with accessories, accoutrements. In our culture, this wedding ring that I wear says that um, I'm married. Now, in many European cultures, me wearing a ring on this hand doesn't communicate it. I'd have to put it on the ring finger of my right hand to communicate that I'm married. So it's the same idea, but it's just being expressed a little bit different way culturally. And uh, so that's really the idea here. It's a long way to give you this answer. And I find it interesting because people really want to obey the word. They say, well, look, it says a head covering. I should wear a head covering. Now, I, I do want to say, if a woman wants to wear a head covering, she has perfect liberty in Jesus Christ to do so. The Bible doesn't prohibit it. But I'm just saying, I don't believe that in Western culture today, a woman need wear a head covering to obey this. I'll give you a, a uh, picture here, just a, a hypothetical scenario. Let's say there's a woman who wears a head covering, but is really rebellious in her church congregation. She's always challenging the leadership. Uh, they give her guidance and they don't want to listen. Uh, she's involved in Bible studies, but she won't take the guidance of the leadership of the church, but she always wears a head covering. We, we would say to that woman, you're disobedient. It doesn't matter how many head coverings you're wearing. You're not submitting to God's ordained authority in the congregation. So you need to do that. It's the submission to God's ordained order that's the real issue here. The head covering was simply how it was expressed in that ancient Eastern culture. All right, we're going to get on to another question here. 
This question comes from June, and June asks this question. Hi, Pastor Guzik. I have three questions about the Holy Spirit. In John 16, Jesus said that when the Spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me. I've heard it said that the Holy Spirit does not come to draw attention to himself. Now, here's June's three questions. Number one, would the Holy Spirit rather we talk about Jesus than himself? In other words, than talk about the Holy Spirit. I know that the Holy Spirit is God and worthy of praise and worship, so I was wondering if you could help me sort that out. Okay, June, I'll, I'll deal with your questions one by one because you have three questions associated with this. Number one, yes, the Holy Spirit's mission is to draw attention to Jesus, just as the verse you read from John chapter 16. When the Spirit of the truth comes, he will glorify Jesus. He'll testify of him. So the main job of the Holy Spirit in a congregation and in an individual's Christian life is to exalt Jesus, to lift up Jesus, to draw people's attention upon Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that there should be no attention given to the Holy Spirit. I mean, after all, if you're going to teach the Bible, you're going to talk about the Holy Spirit because the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit. So if you're going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible, you're going to talk plenty about the Holy Spirit because the Bible talks about it. So it's not like we're forbidden from talking about the Holy Spirit. It's not that we're forbidding from worshiping the triune God. And what we have is we have God who is one in being and three in persons. And it's not wrong for us to praise and honor the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but it's an attitude of focus. If the focus is upon the Holy Spirit and not upon Jesus Christ, something's wrong. So we're not trying to say, well, okay, you can talk five minutes about the Holy Spirit, then you got to talk 40 minutes about Jesus. We're not trying to get into that. But there's just kind of a, a, a focus that needs to be upon Jesus. And while not ignoring the person work of the Holy Spirit, no, God forbid that we would ignore it. We realize that the work of the Holy Spirit is to put the focus on Jesus. That's question number one. Question number two, June asks, the Holy Spirit is God, but why does it feel not quite right to ask the Holy Spirit to forgive me of something? It seems more natural to go to the Father or Jesus. Well, um, June, what you're talking about is it's true. The, the normal pattern of prayer is we pray to God the Father uh, through the mediation of God the Son. In other words, through the access, the path given to us, the work given to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially what he did on the cross. And we do it in and through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So praying or praising or worshiping to the Father through the work of the Son as the Holy Spirit works in us, that's the normal pattern of prayer. But again, we worship one God in three persons. It's not wrong to um, talk to the Holy Spirit. Now, again, it's a matter of emphasis. But for example, the scriptures say in Ephesians, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I just think if we sense that we have grieved the Holy Spirit, it, it's not wrong to say, Holy Spirit, forgive me for grieving you. I just don't think that's wrong. Now, again, it, there would be something strange if somebody's entire prayer focus was towards the Holy Spirit or their entire worship focus was towards the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't have to be like that at all. So again, you're right. There is a focus, a pattern, but we, we shouldn't think that occasionally going out of that focus is somehow forbidden to us in the scriptures. 
And then the third question that June had is this. Are churches who put more of an emphasis on the Holy Spirit than they do on Jesus in error for doing so? And June, I would just answer that question, frankly, yes. It, it is an error to put more of an emphasis on the Holy Spirit than to put it on Jesus. Now, it's also an error to put no emphasis upon the Holy Spirit, to ignore the Holy Spirit, to act like there is no Holy Spirit or that God doesn't want us to be aware of his power and working and his filling in our lives. No, there's the work of the Holy Spirit. There's the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's what the Holy Spirit is doing in and through believers today. It, it has a place to be talked about. Now, your question was, if there's more of an emphasis on the Holy Spirit than on Jesus, yes, that would be an error. But we're not trying to say that there should be no attention given to the Holy Spirit and his work. All right. Final question here as we come up to it. Uh, it's a uh, question from Kelly. Kelly says, hi, David, the from the former Calvary in Cape Town. Hey, anyway, Kelly, nice to see you. God bless you, Pastor Dimitri and the whole crew out there in Cape Town. Quick question. She says, I see a contradiction between Genesis 10.5 and 11.1. This is in regard to the whole world speaking in only one language before Babel. However, in Genesis chapter 10, verse 5, it states that the Gentiles had different languages. Okay, Kelly, great question. Let me get at it. Genesis chapter 10, verses 4 and 5 says this. Ready? The sons of Javan were Elisha, uh, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodornim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Canaans were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Okay? So it does talk about being separated into languages, according to families and nations. And then Genesis 11.1 1 says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. So do you guys kind of get what Kelly's asking about here? It's a good question. Genesis 11, chapter 1 says, The whole earth had one language and one speech. Genesis chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, which, by the way, Genesis 10, you read that in the Bible before you read Genesis 11. It says that they were separated according to their languages. So what's up with that? Well, actually, the, the answer is just kind of simple. Genesis chapter 10 talks about things that happened before Genesis 11, but then extended on in generations far beyond Genesis 11. We, we have to make sure that we understand chronology in the Bible, that all of the people and events described in Genesis chapter 10 did not happen and the people did not live and die before Genesis 11. Genesis 10 tells you, here's a man let me tell you about all his descendants and what happened after them. And so we're talking about things that happened generations after Genesis chapter 11. Uh, our Western mind inherited, I suppose, from Greek and Roman thought and developed, of course, through many centuries. Our Western mind very much prizes a chronology and telling stories in chronological order. That's very important to us. So we, we just, hey, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and make sure you get those ordered right. In Eastern cultures, and let's remember that the Bible is an Eastern book. It, it comes to us from the Near East, the Middle East, some people would say. In those cultures, 
chronology isn't so important in telling a story. And so they may tell it and then go back and, and, and tell it again from a different place in the chronology. And we see this pattern many times in the scriptures. So we don't have to think that everything and everyone mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 lived and died and happened before Genesis 11. Genesis 10 describes people and places and, uh, you know, families and nations that extended forth for generations after Genesis chapter 10. I, I hope I explained that. Okay, Kelly. And God bless you for asking the question. God bless the believers in South Africa and in the Cape Town area. Love that area of the world. And uh, my wife, Inga Lil, and I, we look forward to when we can make it back there. All right, that's going to be it for this recorded question and answer session. Uh, I hope you can join us whenever we can do this live. Normally, whenever I'm in town, we do this question and answer session on Thursday afternoons, noon Pacific time, whatever that is for you in your time zone. I hope you can join us. Uh, thank you for your prayer and your support of the Bible resources on EnduringWord.com. It's reaching a lot of people, and we're very grateful for that. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.